You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Um, welcome uh, once again on another show with on the breakfast show on the Voice of Islam radio. Today is a Thursday, the 9th of November, and we are today going to be speaking about, uh, as as always, we have two segments. The first one <clears throat> this is a very interesting one, uh, which will be about the uh, Iceland's first full day women's strike in 48 hours, in 48 years, sorry, which aims to close the pay gap, the gender pay gap. Um, which in recent years has been getting a lot of popularity. Uh, the second segment, which we will start later on in the day, um, around seven, um, around eight fifteen, is about uh, which is uh, going on in the world, is about war, and we will be discussing in detail what is the Islamic rules of war, and uh, we will also discuss uh, how the Israel and Palestine what is being um, um, conducted and if that's okay or not um, and before we start obviously uh, we will go through the news um, and even before the news we will just shortly go through the weather so I have uh, Imam um, um, Tokir with me as well uh, today who will be, will be presenting with me today on uh, Thursday uh, anyway so the weather the weather is uh, Obviously, as everyone can tell, it is getting uh, colder and it's getting rainier. Um, winter is coming. Uh, the weather seems to be very um, consistent. Uh, it's it's going to be raining throughout the week. Even next week, we'll see a lot of rain. Uh, maybe if uh, on Saturday, it's predicting that there might be some sunshine. Uh, but generally, it's it's a rainy day. Is that gloomy time of the year, you know, just just before winter, uh, time time is shifting, you know, the weather is shifting, days are getting shorter very very quickly, uh, and like nowadays you you don't even realize you, um, I mean most people probably finish work and it's it's already night time literally. So uh, the, the in terms of the temperature, today uh, we will see a high of eleven degrees, and the lowest uh, it dropped was seven degrees so it's still not that cold but tomorrow be careful it can drop uh, all the way down to two three degrees which is getting really cold um two three degrees i mean this this is um kind of winter temperatures already but it will get warmer again uh, later in the week in terms of um the news headlines um today's newspaper headlines uh, are talking about the Prime Minister summons Met Chief and Starmer fights for control uh, and the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak also warning the Met that if these protests which are happening uh, will get out of hand it will be on them uh, and at the same time uh, there is also some news about um, the, the Israel-Palestine conflict uh, so let's go through the papers many of Thursday's papers lead with the ongoing row over whether Saturday's pro-Palestinian march in London should be allowed to go ahead amid remembrance commemorations. The Metro reports that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak summoned Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley to number 10 after warning he would be held to account if the march 
interfered with the commemorations. So Mark has said officers will do all they can to protect remembrance activities, but that there are no grounds to ban the protest. The Daily Express also reports that Mr. Sunak told Sir Mark he would be blamed if the march turned violent and quotes him, branding the planned demonstration disrespectful. The meeting between the pair is described as a tense 45-minute showdown by the Daily Mail. Uh, the paper is also one of a number to carry a picture of the Princess of Wales uh, in an army uniform and helmet during a visit to the first the Queen's Dragon, the Queen's Dragoon Guards in Norfolk on Wednesday. The visit was the Princess's first since she was appointed the regiment's colonel in chief. Uh, a position held by King Charles III when he was Prince of Wales in August. Um, the Times also uh, reports that Home Secretary Suela Beverman has accused the Met of playing favourites and uh, taking a softer approach to protests by left-wing groups than those by right-wing ones. Writing for the paper, Miss Beverman says that right-wing and nationalist protesters who engage in aggression are rightly met with a stern response, yet pro-Palestinian mobs displaying almost identical behaviour are largely ignored, even when clearly breaking the law. Uh, a very huge statement by, uh, by Ms. Baverman. And a, a growing number of Tories are concerned that Ms. Baverman's comments on the march will inflame tensions uh, and fuel anger on the far right, according to the I newspaper. The paper quotes one serving minister saying that her job is to calm things. Uh, but describing the stance she has taken as dangerous and totally irresponsible. The Sun's front page uh, asks, where are all the poppies gone? The paper says busy rail stations have been left without poppy sellers amid fears of more pro-Palestinian protests, and that Mr. Sunak has urged the nation to rally round the annual appeal. So there's some difficulties um, as well in this regard. Labour leader Sir Kastama is battling to uh, reassert his authority within his party amid tensions with some members of his front bench because of his stance on Gaza. The paper says four shadow ministers are prepared to quit in the coming days rather than vote against a ceasefire in the conflict, while up to 10 others are on a resignation watch. It comes after the resignation of Imran Hussein, the shadow minister for the New Deal for Working People, over the issue. So, Sake um, has uh, so far refused to back a ceasefire, saying it uh, would leave Hamas's infrastructure intact and has instead called for humanitarian pause to allow aid into Gaza. The Daily Telegraph uh, leads with a multi-million pound legal action that has been brought against pharmaceutical uh, giant uh, AstraZeneca, um, uh, who, uh, AstraZeneca, which was... Um, one of the vaccines, um, its COVID vaccine defective and suggesting that claims about this uh, efficacy were vastly overstated. The paper says one case is uh, being brought by a man who suffered a brain injury as the result of a blood clot after having the jab, while another is being brought by a man who died after receiving it, adding that the test case could pave the way for more in the future. The paper adds that the World Health Organization has said the vaccine is safe and effective for everyone over 18 and that side effects of the sort that have uh, prompted the action of uh, very rare. 
Um, it also notes that independent studies have estimated that the vaccine saved 6 million lives globally in the first year of its rollout. There's no doubt this vaccine was very, very useful. However, there had been cases, especially in the beginning, about uh, blood clots, about people uh, having very severe and dangerous side effects. Anyways, the, the mother of uh, Alfie Lewis, the 15-year-old who died after being stabbed near a school in Leeds on Tuesday, fell to her knees and cried, why? Uh, when she visited the scene on Wednesday, according to the Mirror, uh, the paper describes Alfie as another victim of the knife crime epidemic and says the mum of uh, another teenager killed in a stabbing has demanded that the government take action on the issue. The Financial Times reports that a Japanese investment company SoftBank paid $1.5 billion to the creditors of co-working space provider. We work in the days before the firm was forced to file for bankruptcy earlier this week. The paper says the payment takes the total that SoftBank has committed to WeWork to more than $16 billion since an initial investment in 2017. A move, it says, has... Uh, proved one of the worst venture capital investments in history. And lastly, the Daily Star carries a picture of what it calls a genomous size 23 footprint found in a woodland in, in Wales. It says the image suggests monster, uh, monster watches have found Bigfoot. Very uh, interesting news, uh, a little bit change uh, is coming in from, from the war, but there is still some news about the war. Uh, we'll take a short break now, and uh, after that, we will be going in, in a bit more detail about what's going around in the world. So stay with us. We'll be back after a quick break. to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you and uh, you're listening to myself, Tukir Ahmed and Usman Manan here in the studio Voice of Islam. Um, as the listeners know, I'm not usually a Thursday morning presenter. <laughs> I don't think you are as well, Usman, or have you been a Thursday presenter? Uh, yes, I've presented, uh, presented um, various days, but uh, not, not the common one. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I usually uh, present on Friday mornings. So, uh, Brother Sahil Munir, he especially um, he requested that I present on um, on uh, Thursday morning. So here I am presenting mm-hmm. on Thursday morning, and he'll be presenting on uh, for me on 
on Friday morning. So uh, he, this is my opportunity to let the listeners know that please do tune in to Friday mornings. The best shows are on Friday mornings. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> if you're listening, if you're listening in on Thursday morning, then you're gonna love it absolutely on Friday morning. So do to stay tuned in for that. Um, as you know, the agenda of this show, uh, we like to go uh, through some of the main news which is happening around the world, and then uh, mm-hmm. we like to also discuss some of the news which is happening with regards to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, but uh, in terms of the news with regards to the community, we'll we'll uh, look at that later. But um, I don't know, Usman, if you've been following the um, the Cricket World Cup these days. I'm sure yes, you have I been. I have been uh, following a little bit. I haven't been watching all the matches because, to be honest, cricket matches are very long. They they are very and long. And this is not even the long the longest format in cricket, yeah, which is uh, yeah. absolutely crazy. I mean, test matches. For those who don't who don't know, cricket has uh, three formats. Primarily, well, for the first one is the T20, which is a 20 over match, which lasts around three four hours. I mean, mm, if both mm. teams play. This is uh, the World Cup, which is happening right now in India. Uh, is the is, it, that's the one day uh, innings cricket format, which is as as the name suggests, is is, is a one it takes a whole day, so almost seven eight hours roughly, or even more, uh, which is a fifty over game, and then there is Test match cricket, uh, which um, I think the cricket. Uh, fans refer to as the real cricket you know this is where you're really tested and you won't believe that that goes on for five days Mm -hmm. and uh, the most absurd thing about this is that even after five days you can have a draw Mm. (laughs) (laughs) so yeah the the World Cup of the uh, ODI the 50 over um, innings is happening and uh, yes I have been following um what what uh, have you been following? What's, what's yeah your yeah? It's the thing is it's, it's I I think whenever we we get any sort of World Cup, be it cricket or football or anything else, really, I, I think it's a great opportunity to see some of the talent, um, you know, the world has to offer. And sometimes, you know, you'll come across a particular team um, that, in no way in your mind, you thought they would have performed exceptionally well and you know they just prove everyone wrong um one example being in this cricket world cup uh, i think has been afghanistan they've taken on mm-hmm. some of the biggest teams and uh, they've uh, they've beaten them as well um so you know this is the opportunity i guess where all these teams to get together and you see all of these uh, great uh, i would say sometimes even superhuman abilities where you know you you've come across some matches where people have just taken you back um and, and especially you know uh, you must have seen the match between Afghanistan and Australia we w- everyone thought you know that this is <laughs> this is in the bag for um for uh, for Afghanistan but uh, Australia especially one player i think uh, managed to uh you know, uh, uh, some of his superhuman skills, um, Glenn Maxwell. You know, making two hundred <laughs> one runs, wow. uh, breaking the world record actually in yeah. in in yeah. in these uh, in these World Cup matches. He was the the no one has made that much. Yeah, Maxwell. Um, I mean, he's he's been uh, for those who watch cricket in previous years. He he plays IPL, the Indian Premier League. And uh, I mean, he's a power hitter. I mean, if if you need someone to save the day, that was the right person for it. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Australia was down uh, ninety-one to seven at one point, 
uh, and they were chasing 292 <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know in cricket you see these um, reckless um, like kind of comebacks uh, i think it's more because uh, i don't i don't think of cricket as a team sport yeah because uh, it's very individual like one bowler has to bowl the ball it solely depends on him if he bowls good i mean the, the, that one bowl will be will be good uh, the, the hit also depends on one batsman there's not much of a teamwork even the fielding is one person has to you know catch the ball sometimes you you do see instances of teamwork but i think it's more of a more of a, a individual sport rather than a team sport mm. uh, whereas if you compare it to football for example in football it the team effort is very important mm. uh, if one team is you know what, like having good having a good uh, teamwork then uh, they can easily dominate the other team mm. whereas uh, in cricket uh, and we see so many examples like glen maxwell's or uh, against afghanistan that individual um brilliance kind of comes forward absolutely and and mm. i guess uh, one thing i just wanted to mention is that right now what it shows is that uh, there are three teams which uh, which have qualified india uh, south africa australia all uh, with uh, india with 16 points but uh, um south africa and australia with 12 points so they've qualified for the semi finals mm-hmm. so right now the, the the battle is between uh, the last position who's going to be um, uh, you know who's going to be selected as uh, going into the semi final and that battle is between new zealand and uh, and pakistan both have 8 points and uh, today the match is actually between new zealand and sri lanka and uh, the forecast is shown to rain but <laughs> uh, let's see let's see what happens um so one option would be that if it rains yeah. and uh, it rains throughout then both teams will be getting one point each mm-hmm. so that means new zealand will get a nine point and if pakistan then win their match then uh, they will be getting two points so 10 points so it's a very very, very narrow it's stages. very narrow is the last match of, of each team um, in the in the um, playoffs yeah yeah this will decide who will go up so yeah so yeah check check this out uh, check the world cup out and <laughs> follow that uh oh, on the other side here on football uh, as you know maybe uh yesterday there was the champions league night and tonight as well mm. uh yesterday i think madrid they beat the braga 3-0 uh arsenal won the game inter milan also played uh one interesting game was copenhagen against united manchester united uh united got a red card marcus rashford and copenhagen beat them 4-3 Uh, and then and, and the coach um uh I just mind for his name uh, Ten Hag mm. he is he was furious he's saying that the decisions made in that in that uh, match were were just shocking mm. he said like six de- decisions you could even if you give it to a kid i mean he would get it right and but these things happen uh there's another example of uh, how uh, like a a a underdog team beat you know one of mm. the world's biggest clubs um But yeah, I mean, a crazy moment for the Copenhagen. Um, I'm I'm not really surprised. That's <laughs> 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 disrespectful to United. No, I'm I'm actually a Manchester United supporter, but sometimes you know I, I think past uh, a few matches uh, they haven't been uh, performing. Mm. Uh, I don't I don't know what it is. Uh, 
Yeah, so, I don't know. And towards the, at the end of the last season, they they were coming up uh, very good. I mean, they were performing really well. But I don't know what it is with United. I mean, it, it, it can't be the players. It can't be the coach. There's just some some kind of curse on that club. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no offense to anyone. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, that was it from the from the sports news. Yeah, and I think um, we can uh, wrap this up. Uh, with uh, some of the news which is happening with regards to the Amdiya Muslim community as well and mm. as our listeners know as well uh, especially on Friday mornings what I do like to do is come a- cover some of the news with regards to the Amdiya Muslim community and specifically we we like to look at some of the uh, some of the activities of His Holiness Azam Azam Ahmed head of the Amdiya Muslim community and uh, just recently um his holiness on the on sunday on 29th of october uh, he had a virtual uh, meeting with the amdi uh, with members of the amdi muslim community from kosovo and this is actually the first uh, meeting his holiness mm. has had with the members of the amdi muslim community in kosovo so yeah. it is Virt- virtually virtually yeah. virtually so it's it's very remarkable you know especially when uh, when uh, you know these meetings do come as it is a source of guidance for uh for the members of the community and also uh, wide at large for for members for ju- for just everyone for really world, for yes. the whole world really <coughs> and uh, a lot of the times what happens is that some of the in these meetings uh, they do ask questions to his holiness as well um and his holiness gives guidance on that for example one member said uh, in this virtual meeting that she works as a saleswoman as has sh- scheduled uh, shifts at her job and she mentioned as a result of her work she often finds herself rushing through her prayers and she expressed concern that this has become a habit and asked his holiness for mm-hmm. guidance on how to address this issue very important issue that a lot of us you know that do uh, work and uh, often at times um, we'll be lucky if our em- employer you know he does give us time to to pray so one que- the question she asked is that she's often uh, she sometimes has to rush her prayers due to her work so the reply his holiness gave to this he said that allah has made the five daily prayers obligatory and to be offered at different times throughout the day and with the purpose of reminding people to remember god almighty and fulfill their duties of worshiping worshiping him and his holiness explained that as a saleswoman she doesn't work around the clock her shifts typically last between 6 to 8 hours and he pointed out that during these shifts only one or two prayers uh, would conc- uh, c- coincide with her working hours and his holiness referring to the prayers that don't align with her work schedule uh, emphasize the importance of offering them attentively and with sufficient time and secondly his holiness also mentioned that the holy prophet peace be upon him also encouraged us to engage in voluntary prayers where individuals can fervently pray to allah the almighty and he also emphasized that she should not use this situation as excuse to rush through the rest of her prayers so very very important um, answer that yes holiness has given that you know as a muslim we are instructed to pray five times a day and 
the these prayers uh, they have their particular timing as well such as in the morning midday afternoon um and uh, you know just just before sunset and uh, towards the night as well so zonina said that you know do you can't say that for all of the prayers the ones where you're not working you know try and make sure that you do attentively focus towards your prayers as well and i i guess this reminds me of a narration of the holy prophet uh, peace and blessings of allah the almighty be upon him in which he mentioned when a companion asked him regarding the benefits of prayers and his holiness mentioned that he asked the question to the companion that that do you see this stream which is flowing uh, outside if you were to take a bath within this stream five times a day would there be any dirt left on your body and to this the companion replied in um, in negative that no the prophet no you know my body would be clean and there will be no dirt on on the physical body and his holiness said that this is what prayer has on our spirituality as well uh, so mm. we should continue to look after our spirituality and remember allah the almighty it's just like um, i remember the fourth caliph used to say that uh, you know we we eat three times a day our main yeah. three meals is three times a day but often especially i've s- you'll see in the uk is we like to have snacks you know in yeah. between <laughs> those three big meals we like to have snacks in between sometimes we're always eating we're yeah. constantly just eating yeah, crisps for chocolate so if we're looking if you're going into that much detail to look after our physical um our physical uh, body then you know i guess uh, uh, the main question is how much are we attentively uh, paying how much attention mm-hmm. are we play, pray, paying towards our spirituality so i i guess that is the question um which which needs to be understood and the, and the and the holy quran emphasizes very clearly that wa ma khalaqtul jinna wal ins illa liya'budun that the sole purpose of man is to worship um the the allah the almighty and i yes. guess with that we'll we'll close this particular segment uh we'll go into a short break and straight after the break uh we'll be come coming into our first segment so don't go anywhere You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum welcome back uh you're joining uh, me Usman Manan and um, my brother uh, Imam Tukid and we're going to start our first segment um which is about uh, as I mentioned earlier about uh Iceland's first full day women strike in 48 years about uh, the gender pay gap and they are planning on closing this one uh, I mean for sure this time and uh, you know thousands of women across Iceland including the prime minister expect expect is expected to stop working as a full day strike takes place with the aim to close the gender pay gap and uh yes so th- this this will be um the discussion and uh t- you know to start right off we have our first guest on the line uh who is uh, Dr Sarah Forbes Dr Sarah Forbes is an uh, academic researcher at the University of York School for Business and Society with a keen interest in research with impact 
Sarah is a member of the Work uh, Work Inclusivity Research Center and uh, an associate of the Center for Responsible Business who actively works with organizations and policymakers to create positive change. More specifically, her research involves the advancement of knowledge and practice in the area of family-friendly policies. Uh, and uh, as a co-director of the Equal Parenting Project, Sarah's research is nationally recognized for advancing knowledge, uh, advancing knowledge and uh, around the subject of parental leave and flexible working hours, which is kind of uh, a very important aspect of um, the gender pay gap. So let's uh, welcome her. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Um, welcome to the breakfast show, Sarah. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, how are you this morning? Oh, very good. Very good. I've had my coffee, so I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> great. Me too. <laughs> now we're awake. Uh, yeah, so we, as you, as you probably, uh, probably just heard, um, we are going to talk about uh, Iceland's uh, strike day, uh, about the gender pay gap. Um, so my question, my first question to you is, um, I mean, what motivated you to research and work actively uh, on the subject of parental leave and flexible working policies? Uh, as uh, these are, you know, uh, I, I believe the, the core issue of, uh, of the gender pay gap as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's it. You know, what we have here is in Iceland, the recognition that, um, you know, women are taking on a lot of unpaid work in the home. Um, we have a lot of, um, you know, the result of that being displayed in the gender pay gap. So myself and Dr. Holly Burkett at the University of Birmingham, what we do, and as you nicely um, pointed out in the introduction, is uh, we do research that's very much motivated to create change, positive change. And with what we understand of um, the role of parental leave and flexible working is that they are key contributors to um, actually the gender pay gap, but also means with which we can create positive change. So what we identified was the fact that in the United Kingdom, uh, there is actually the matern well, maternity leave policy, there are flexible leave policies, but the truth of the matter is there isn't necessarily a lot of support for um, the use of parental leave by fathers, um, mm -hmm. and there isn't actually a lot of use of flexible working policies beyond flexi time, um, you know, by fathers. So, for example, you'll see a very low uptake of um, compressed hours or um, part-time working or um, annualized hours, etc. So, you know, in essence, what um, Dr. Holly Burkett and myself were actually very keen to do is make sure that we actually inform organizations and policymakers of how it is that they can actually make a change in their policies to improve the uptake of uh, you know parental leave policies by men which have humongous <laughs> benefits for family units and yeah. that you know it's not just the mother but it's actually the father and the child that can actually reap the benefits as well mm -hmm. so we're very keen in actually um, making that positive change so that it actually is beneficial for not just um, you know one member of the family but for the entire family mm -hmm. great um, and uh, can you also explain uh, how your research has made an impact on the advancement of family-friendly policies and uh, gender equality in the workplace. Uh, what have you uh, suggested? Um, so what we really are keen to do is try to make um, policymakers and organizations recognize uh, key barriers that are faced by families 
So mm. what that involves is us actually conducting research within organisations, with families, and actually trying to get to the heart as to why it is that certain policies are not being used. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, for example, we actually will present organisations with the opportunity um, to understand this uh, better by reports, policy briefs, um, and essentially give them the means with which they can make decisions to improve their policy offerings. But in essence, and I'll just summarise very quickly what, mm -hmm. you know, what we actually have uh, found is that you know, a number of barriers exist. Um, so, for example, communication barriers exist. You will often find that families will talk about the fact that they were simply unaware of policies in existence. Um, so one being that there is a policy called shared parental leave. Now, shared parental leave is a policy that um, enables um, well, the other parent uh, to actually extend their leave. So in the United Kingdom, what we have is paternity leave, which is two weeks, two weeks. And, um, and that's, that's really, you know, quite, quite a short amount of time to spend with your child, you know. Yeah. So if you think about the fact that many people aren't aware of shared parental leave, which is a mechanism in which a family can make a choice, and it's up to the family. It's not that they should do this or we, the Equal Parenting Project does not dictate or tell people what to do. What we want to <laughs> do is an enable option, yeah. choice. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is make people aware that shared parental leave is a policy that exists that enables people, um, for example, the father to take um, a bit longer for their leave. And this would be the result of um, the decision by the, the mother to actually offer some of her leave to him, for example. Mm. Um, so that's actually something that is readily available. And at the present time, it's the only means with which, um, you know, other parents are actually able to extend their leave. So communication is one key barrier. But we've also got, you know, internally in an organisation, the mechanisms of actually making people aware of these as well. So society may not be familiar with shared parental leave, um, communications outside of work may not necessarily communicate it, um, or people may not be familiar with it, but within an organization, there are also barriers in that the organization may not necessarily be easily communicating it to people, and it might be that it's an abundance of text and people are put <laughs> off by it. Um, and then you've also got things like, um, well, financial barriers. And this is coming back to the point with paternity leave. So paternity leave is actually only paid at a statutory level. So it's about, off the top of my head, I think it's about £172 a week. Now, if I was to offer this to any family member and say, try and live off £172 a week, you know, they would simply say that's simply not affordable. Yeah. So a lot of families are actually having to make the decision or not necessarily being given a choice necessarily um, and saying, I can't take paternity leave. I have to, and very often, um, in this case, fathers are the breadwinner, um, they would actually make the decision, well, I have to stay at work and I cannot be with my family. Mm. And that's an incredibly, incredibly stressful decision to make. And the, that, so, uh, sorry, that number is the same for uh, the father and the mother? One, uh, so what... So what happens is um, with maternity leave, they actually have within the first six weeks, 
um, 90% average weekly earnings. Um, And so that means that a woman, you know, in the case of the parent that would be taking maternity leave, they would be offered um, 90% average weekly earnings. That's very different from um, the other parent who would be getting statutory pay for two weeks. So um, this is where, you know, you can see that financially a lot of, you know, a lot of other parents are actually being excluded from the opportunity to spend time with their family. So a key recommendation would be to actually help overcome this financial barrier and make, um, you know, these parental leave policies more accessible to other parents. Um, So that would be a huge, huge difference um, because a lot of the time when we did this research, um, Dr. Holly Burkett and myself, we encountered many fathers that were actually saying, I wanted to take leave, but I simply couldn't because the finances just didn't make it possible. So that's another thing. And um, so, you know, in relation to our research and what it is that we actually are able to do, um, like I said, we can, or we do, actively go into organizations and make them aware of these barriers. Uh, we also make sure that we put this research in the hands of policymakers um, so that they're aware of the um, barriers faced by families. And it makes a huge difference in that, you know, you can see um, organizations are actually um, recognizing that they can play a role in improving the uptake of families and they can actually reap the benefits as well. So it's not just, um, <clears throat> you know, seen as a, you know, give this to families and just ignore um, everything else. It's actually a societal issue. Um, if we actually better support families, um, you know, there's a there's a huge benefit in relation to, for example, the gender pay gap. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, all of these things come around and, you know, if we do actually make these positive changes, we will reap the rewards. Mm. But, uh, uh, you know, in the UK, uh, legally, can you have a different pay for different genders? Uh, because according to the Equal Pay Act in 2010, uh, I mean, what does that really uh, say? So what you're talking about is, um, well, the Equality Act of 2010 does cover um, gender discrimination and you've got a number of characteristics in the, the Equality Act. But with reference to statutory pay for maternity leave, that's a little bit different. So, mm-hmm. um, but if somebody was to be, you know, working in the same role and they were being paid differently simply based on their sex, um, then that would be a, a, a significant concern. But there are... Um, you know, like I said, there are characteristics like maternity characteristics that are in place that protect uh, mothers on their return to work. Um, but in essence, I should say this, um, just because the Equality Act exists <laughs> does not mean that discrimination is obliterated because what we see every day is that discrimination still takes place. Um, and, you know, these are things to be very mindful of. Yeah. But this this is like uh, I think one of the key uh, arguments of of the people opposing uh, or, or disbelieving in the gender pay gap. They said there is no gender pay gap because uh, I mean by law you you uh, or even um, if you look at the statistics, usually men and women they start off with the same pay. Is is that true? Um, so okay, what we can what I can um, tell you is that when it comes to 
um, average pay, what you'll see is that, in, you know, if you were to compare a line of average earnings over time, men and women are typically uh, the same up until around the mid to late 20s when people may, you know, start to have children. Yeah. And then, it, well, women, you know, essentially their earnings fall off a cliff. And that's the result of the fact that, and, I, and I'll give you a bit of a backstory here, um, <clears throat> so the United Kingdom was incredibly progressive when it came to its policies. In 1948, for example, um, they introduced maternity allowance, and maternity allowance was 13 weeks pay. Now, at that time, that was really great, and actually, you know, in terms of being a world leader, wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, but what that did communicate was the fact that once a, um, you know, a family has a child, the mother should stay home. Um, and she, that's her role. She is to be the primary carer. She is to um, give up work. And now the thing is, it took 55 years for there to be recognition that there is another partner in that family. Mm. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, what actually happened was in 2003, they introduced paternity leave. Now, that's 55 years in which we've developed cultural expectations, societal expectations that women should be the sole carer. So, you know, in essence, what we're talking about with the gender pay gap is the recognition that, you know, women are taking on a lot of unpaid work in the home. Um, yes. Women are actually taking on a lot more um, of the child caring responsibilities. And as a result, their labor market attachment, which is a term used to refer to, you know, women, um, how, uh, you know, do they return back to work um, or are they in the workplace? Um, labor market attachment, you know, is not strong. So, um, and that's the result of these parental leave policies and the expectation that they be the sole carer. So with reference to the gender pay gap, what we're seeing is the byproduct of these policies being very much, well, okay, they're very supportive of um, women to be uh, the, the primary carer, but what would be really good is to actually see the opportunity for the family unit, both partners, um, to have the opportunity and choice, and I must stress choice, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, to actually have um, the, the time to look after their child. Hmm. Yes, very interesting. Um, but uh, 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 maybe if you can tell from my questions, I am a little bit um, also uh, opposing this notion that the gender pay gap is it's, it's a huge gap or it's a big problem. Because I also, and I mean, according to the Islamic system of, of, of family, is that usually the ma the man is the bread earner, uh, the wife um, uh, in most cases, you know, it's she's more responsible for the house because somebody has to take off the house and the children. So in that sense, um, if you look from the perspective of the employer, um, uh, obviously every employer is looking uh, uh, at their own benefit. So for them, uh, wouldn't that be um, a problem because a mother naturally needs to take more leave than the father? So my my question is just, uh, just in your in your research or in your uh, policies, um, are you trying to reach a equal parental leave, uh, the same amount of uh, for both parents, or the same uh, pay for same uh, uh, both parents? So uh, essentially, I mean, it would be wonderful if we could achieve that. But I mean, this is a marathon, <laughs> 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 not print. But um, you know, with reference to organisation. 
creatively spring, we've seen a number of organisations in multiple sectors actually change the parental policies. And as a result, you've seen more men actually using uh, these parental leave policies. So, mm. you know, where there is the offering, there is the demand, you know. So what you're seeing is that a lot of families have the opportunity to take care of not only their child, but also their partner. Um, because in essence, the time in which mother really is quite vulnerable, like you said, they do need that time to actually recuperate. So, Definitely. you know, and this is in essence what maternity leave is also about as well. Um, mothers do need that time to recover. So, mm. you know, if the, the partner is there and able to actually look after uh, the mother, then that's, you know, hugely beneficial. Mm. Uh, good morning, uh, Dr. Sarah Forbes. Um, good morning. I actually had uh, uh, two questions on this uh, particular topic as well. I wanted to ask specifically uh, regarding your research that how have organizations and policymakers, uh, how have they been influenced by your research and what concrete changes have been implemented as a result? Yeah, not a problem. So um, essentially, I'll, I'll start talking about policymakers and then I'll go into organizations. Um, so now with reference to policymakers in government, um, you know, what we do with the Equal Parenting Project is we supply, um, like I said, reports, uh, policy briefs, all around the experiences and, you know, ex uh, views of parents' relation to parental leave and working. So we were able to actually contribute to, for example, um, rental leave policy reviews and actually um, contribute to, uh, with expert uh, knowledge, the how, how the parental rights survey is measured. So that means that the government has um, data that is very up-to-date and representative of the population to appreciate and understand how people are using parental leave policies. Um, and we're also able to, um, you know, try and actually drive uh, public debate. So with this uh, research, we're encouraging and supporting um, members of parliament to actually um, try and reflect on how it is that they can improve the parental leave policies. There are multiple avenues in which that's possible. So, you know, you can actually go through uh, government consultations, you can go through um, select committee inquiries, um, you can hold events in parliament, um, and, you know, uh, one of the ways in which we do that um, is via the Working Dad Employer Awards. So we held an event earlier this year, which was bringing together, um, you know, policymakers and organizations to recognize organizations that are doing positive work in this area. And, you know, these organizations can actually act as an inspiration to policymakers as to what can happen if there is to be an improvement in support in relation to rental, and even in terms of actually improving uptake of uh, flexible working policies, uh, you know, amongst other parents. Um, and that nicely transitions into what, you know, impact we actually have um, with organizations. Um, so, as I mentioned, we actually go into organizations and we aim to actually help them to change their offerings. So we will work uh, strenuously to understand what might be actually going on in the organization with reference to how people are currently using an offering, but we will also um, 
aim to understand what it is that they need to actually create a business case um, to, you know, uh, encourage the management team to actually change their offering. So what happens there is organisations um, have made changes to their policy as a result of the support and work. And, um, and that's actually incredibly fulfilling because the difference it can make to families is significant. Um, but like I said, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, so um, Dr. Burkhead and I, we are working very hard to always make sure that uh, organisations and policymakers have up-to-date research um, to make sure that they can make informed decisions to actually improve uh, their mental and working um, offerings. Great, thank you so much for that, um, Dr. Sarah. Uh, we are approaching the eight o'clock news, uh, but before uh, we we get to the news, I think we can squeeze in one more question. And uh, I wanted to look at more of the uh, strike which is happening in Iceland. So what were some of the key goals and outcomes of Iceland's first full-day women's strike to close the uh, pay gap? If you can just finish off with that, Dr. Sarah. Well, in essence, what was going on in Iceland, and admittedly, I'm not, um, you know, uh, a member of the strike team or <laughs> anything like this. I'm, I'm merely an outsider from the UK uh, talking about what they're, they're doing. And um, But in essence, they were actually making an effort to, um, and successfully made an effort to draw attention to the contribution women make to society. Um, so this was the first time they had ever done this, but they'd actually had a full-day strike where it was basically drop all tools and actually highlight the fact that they are supporting, um, well, they're enabling society to, to tick over, to keep going. So if they actually will, um, well, that if they do drop all tools, they can show society show uh, their other half, the partners, the, you know, uh, men, um, that they actually make a significant contribution. So it's highlighting unpaid work in the home. It's highlighting what they do in the workplace. Mm. It's highlighting an, any number of things, but also um, another key message they actually had was um, just to make sure that women are better compensated and better um, identified for their contributions society. Great, Dr. Sarah Foss, thank you so much for joining us this morning and uh, shedding light on this subject. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us. Uh, so yeah, it's a very very um, interesting topic, and I, I think I was quite taken back by what uh, dr sarah mentioned that uh, in uh, you know from 1947 yeah, uh, after <laughs> 1948 after 55 years you know in uh, in 2003 that's when they when uh, usa realized mm-hmm. that you know we should have the parental leave um, for, and before for the father yeah. for the father and before that it, it that wasn't the case uh, mm-hmm. throughout um, yeah even even the maternal leave i mean uh, if uh, the, I mean these policies, policies were made uh, you know less than a century ago, uh, so if you think about it, I mean all that time before, um, obviously the society was a bit different. Um, women had more traditional jobs, you know, like um, 
now nowadays i mean the, the our society technology has advanced so much that there's work everywhere there's so much work and works and jobs are more demanding mm. uh i mean you see people i don't think uh, if you go back 100 or 200 years ago people would be working 14 hours a day mm. uh, you know sitting in the office well there wasn't no offices but Uh, I mean, they had different jobs. Um, different. There was a different life. Dif- different roles now. Yeah. Now But you'd uh, find people like in today's like society, it's changed. Uh, I mean, the there there shouldn't be any gap uh, between genders. Any reason to differentiate a pay between genders because uh, it's about the work. If they get the job done, then uh, they should get equal pay. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we'll we'll look into the Islamic perspective more in detail after the the eight o'clock news um but now we're just going to be taking a short break and after that uh we'll be discussing the islamic perspective on this issue so don't go anywhere we'll be back shortly after this break you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, assalamualaikum, peace be upon all our listeners. Um, welcome back to The Breakfast Show this morning, this Thursday morning. You're listening to myself, Imam Usman Manan. Um, myself and Usman. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, think I'm, uh, I need some sleep now. <laughs> yeah, so myself and uh, Imam Usman Manan here in the studio voice of Islam. So I usually present on uh, Friday mornings. So all of the listeners that let's tune in to Thursday morning, if you love Thursday morning, you're going to absolutely love Friday mornings. <laughs> um, well, what days do you present? Uh, I mostly on Mondays. Monday. How is that? I don't really listen to that much. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's probably better than Friday. <laughs> no, I, I do tune in. Uh, mm. I do listen to Daniel Zia. You you have a big team as well. Uh, you have a yeah. you have a lot of range of presenters. So mm. yeah, to be honest, all all the days uh, they have uh, everyone has a personal touch to it, and uh, yeah, okay. all the shows are good. <laughs> perfect, perfect very good very good to know um so we're discussing uh, this topic of the gender pay gap uh, as you know the the issue um, the strike which is taking place in Iceland um and uh, you know a bit more about the strike is that uh, is that uh, this was taken on the uh, 24th of uh, October 2023 and many women in Iceland they weren't actually encouraged to go on strike to demonstrate their contribution to the society uh, we did speak to Dr Sarah Forbes on this issue as well uh, she spoke very well on it so we're, we're just going to be covering the islamic perspective on this uh, particular issue mm-hmm. and uh, i think we'll start this off uh, with a clip from his holiness uh, hasan zamsur ahmed head of the amdia muslim community so This is a small clip on uh, the, the the question of why men uh, and women should be treated equally uh, according to Islamic teaching. So uh, let's just listen to that. Assalamu alaikum, Piyahir Azur. Islam says men and women are equal. So why are they not treated equally in all societies around the world? We are not responsible for each and every society and nation. Islam says they are equal and Muslims should treat the women equally 
as they are equal partners. See? And uh, we Ahmadis should also treat MD men and women. I have spoken on this subject at length in my different speeches and addresses in during Jalsa Salana and Lajna Ishtama. In so you can find out the answer from there. You see, Islam says they are equal as far as their rights are concerned. But there are some rights which are discharged in different ways. Or, but it does not mean that they have been deprived from their rights. The women have been deprived from their rights. So, in a true Islamic society, men and women, men and women, boy and girl should be treated equally. Those who do not do this thing, they are doing against the teaching of Islam. So if you have any particular incident or you want to ask any particular question in this regard, then you can ask, what is in your mind? If you take it in general, then this is, this is the teaching of Islam. And those all the Muslim countries should act upon it according to this teaching, right? So that was a small clip from His Holiness. Um, and, uh, you know, if we look at the teachings of Islam, um, Islam particularly s- says that, uh, you know, in the, in the sight of Allah the Almighty, uh, He looks at a righteousness of a particular person that is the most honorable um in that is the individual who is most honorable in the sight of Allah mm. and uh, this is clearly mentioned in verse 49 uh, chapter 49 verse 14 now that the almighty says in the name of Allah the gracious the merciful that o mankind we have created you from a male and a female and we have we have made you tribes and subtribes that you, you may know one another verily the most honorable amongst you in the sight of Allah is he who is most righteous amongst you. Surely Allah is all-knowing and all-aware. And it's very uh, mm. fascinating, interesting that Allah the Almighty, He very clearly, He's mentioned male and female in this in this verse. And that shows that uh, Allah the Almighty, He says that if a believing woman, she excels in spirituality, and she attains that level of righteousness, then Allah the Almighty will give her the exact same reward that He would to that to that to to a man who has excelled in righteousness. Mm. And These words are uh, might be very familiar familiar to a lot of people because this, this exact verse was recited in the beginning of the Qatar World Cup as well. Uh, um, it was obviously to uh, mention that. Uh, God has created different tribes, different nations and races um, just for uh, so you can recognize each other. Uh, but this is uh, uh, the other part of the verse which is very important that who is actually the best among the people and that's mm. exactly you know measured you know according to your wealth, according to your the size of your house or the or the color of your skin or your, your ethnicity. Mm. So you're measured by by your acts. 
by what you do how how people perceive you and uh, i mean that's the greatest um, achievement in life absolutely absolutely and and you know what's interesting uh, is that uh, usman that within islam every angle that you look at it, it shows how how much equality is emphasized within within islam and i'll give you a brief example is is that when when we stand for prayer we all stand equally yeah and kings or even a person who maybe very in the society he might be very poor he might not even have a job he would be standing next to a king yeah and shoulder islam says shoulder. that shoulder to shoulder and islam says that there's there's nothing wrong with that in that and everyone standing shoulder to shoulder you'll be remembering allah the almighty so even when it comes to gender um you know islam very particularly says that men and women are both equal and uh, yeah, yeah. Th- th- that was obviously in regard in prayer you stand uh, not with the woman but even uh, if you compare men and women in islam the uh, the equality as his holiness mentioned i mean i can't be uh, emphasized anymore that the equality is in the rights uh, women have the same right and men have the same right they have the e- equal reward but uh, the difference that islam clearly mentions is in duties and uh, this is something which uh, i think in today today's society is uh, all is the, the objections are raised about this that uh, i mean women can't work women are supposed to stay at home even though islam does not mention this and nowhere anywhere islam clearly says that man can work and woman can work there's permission for both but you need to look at the circumstances now if you have a child a family has a child uh if both parents go to work i mean the the child what's he going to do he's going to go to work as well i mean somebody has to take care of the child and uh, because islam is in, in line with nature um that's why it it uh i mean there is no like uh injunction on this but naturally the the mother takes care of the child because the mother can take care of the child the father especially for the first year or two the father can't breastfeed a child so the mother has to do it um but people also misunderstand um this aspect that uh, they think that the fathers are you know free from any duty mm. even though the father's duty increases just as much as the mother's because the father has to not only take care of the child he also has to take care of the mother cuz she's she's in a state of weakness uh, she just gave birth for the past 9 months she's been carrying a child and even after that it takes so long to recover um and if we compare this uh, link this to today's um topic here the gender pay gap um i think uh, if if uh, anyone is trying to achieve the same parental leave for father and mother then that wouldn't be fair that wouldn't be fair on the mother because the mother deserves more time she needs more time the father doesn't need as much time because his uh his uh, you know natural duties towards a child are not in the same sense as uh, the mothers um the father is responsible to you know bringing the money so the mother can make food and feed the child and the family um but if you reverse those roles then there will be a uh, huge uh problems because uh as i said i mean the father can't take of a care of the of the young child of the, of the infant uh in the same way as the mother can so uh, clearly islam mentions very clearly that the rewards the um rights are the same uh, if you see any difference if you see any a contradiction in islam call us on 02086 8778 mention it 
uh, let us know and uh, we will uh, look into it we'll explain that there is no contradiction there is no um, such uh, anything that goes uh, against the natural order of things um, yeah absolutely um, so with that uh, we'll conclude uh, this uh, particular segment and uh, we'll be moving on now to our next segment and uh, we're looking at uh, the the topic um, we're looking at the topic of Islamic rules of war uh, so this is a very uh, very important topic especially um, especially nowadays especially nowadays and you know as the as the world uh, watches in horror the prevailing carnage between Hamas and Israel people are becoming increasingly polarized and and we need to be constantly reminded of the valuable teachings of Islam and how they have through history provided peace within times of turmoil mm-hmm. so it's it's a it's a very in, important topic and we will be looking at the his, historical aspect of of uh, of this and also we'll be looking at the islamic perspective of this as well and uh, i'm pleased to know that we are joined by our first uh, first guest um, and this is dr muhammad iqbal and he is a producer and host of Living History on Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you for joining us this morning. Wa alaikum salam, and thank you for having me. So it's uh, very, uh, you know, whenever we listen to you, uh, it's always a privilege, and uh, I, I love the Bradford accent. But it's very strong, uh, but also very, it's, it's good, good fun to listen to. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, so, Dr. Iqbal, uh, throughout the history of Islam, in what sorts of situation has war been permitted and when is it justified? The Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him made it absolutely clear and it is well stated within the Holy Quran, our Holy Scripture, that Muslims are only to fight to defend themselves, their faith, and their home when an aggressor comes upon them. Uh, war is not allowed for aggression. You will know, and I'm sure you'll have covered plenty of times on your radio station, that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, did not go to war against the um, idol worshippers in Mecca who persecuted him and his followers terribly. He migrated to Medina, resisted uh, um, and any uh, sort of uh, uh, inclination towards war. And it is only when continuously they were oppressed and then they were being attacked in Medina itself when God Almighty revealed the verses to say that if you've been driven out of your homes and your faith is under danger, you can go to war defensively. And that's when the Muslims actually took up the sword and defended themselves and this has been the guidance for Muslims throughout, that was followed clearly by the companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, and early Muslims. And, uh, you know, history is a witness to that, despite attempts by modern scholars and political figures to tarnish the name of Islam. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I guess when, when it does come to uh, this particular topic, uh, critics are very uh, quick to say that, you know, um, that Islam, you know, there were wars uh, at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. But they forget that the first 13 years of the Prophet that they, you know, and, and the companions that they spent in Mecca, 
they were heavily persecuted by by the by the Meccans so much so that they were driven out of their homes and my my second question is regarding that actually uh, Dr Iqbal um so we know that religious wars were fought during the time of prophet muhammad peace and blessings be upon him the almighty be upon him can you relate some incidents that show how the companions even uh, when these wars were fought how they abided by the laws of war yes i mean there are plenty of uh, great uh, examples uh, f- firstly uh, when an enemy is bent on aggression and destroying you um it is important that war takes place where ordinary civilians are not in danger and killed so when you look at the battle of badr it was uh, outside medina itself where combatants met combatants to combatants and the war uh, took place so this is very important because in this day and age in warfare when you look at uh, many of the wars fought through the european world etc terrible civilian deaths have taken place so that's the first instruction the, the the second bit is that you're fighting for a cause for allah for justice for establishing your religion and there's an interesting incident where you know the, the companions were fighting and um one of the enemies when azat ali was fighting uh, spat on his face and he felt very angry and felt obviously he was in a dominant position as a tali and he could have you know slayed him there but instead of doing that he just let the the enemy go and later companion asked him as why did you do that and he said the reason is because at that stage anger overcame me and then i remembered the guidance of the holy prophet and i thought no if i kill him in anger it will be wrong so that's why i let him go so that's an amazing example most people would have thought twice splitting mm-hmm. the sort of them <laughs> at that stage um i mean another great example was you know the khalid bin walid one of the greatest generals of all time in human history and for the muslims the sword of allah when he used to go to battles he always firstly he allowed time for consultation with the enemy to say look you know these are our terms this is what we are trying to defend and then these these are the unfair and aggressive things that you've done to us and gave them an invitation for islam for peace if peace could be sought and when they didn't then he again went out and offered a one to one challenge to any of the generals so rather than killing hundreds and maybe thousands of people let's mm-hmm. have a battle and of course he was victorious in all of those but many a times the generals used to decline out of shame and that was another positive things to save you know not have bloodshed uh, etc um and then of course you've got the many commandments of zumar radiyallahu anhu and of course all the khulafas well that his aim was not to expand the muslim empire you know the muslims quickly took over most of the persian empire but he said you know i wish there was a boundary between us so that we didn't have to keep going to war he didn't want to expand all the way to india china and the rest of the world he just wanted to defend the muslims and the faith and uh, you know establish uh, justice so this cause and there's plenty of other examples as well throughout muslim history mm. thank you dr ikbal um you know t- in t- today we have this uh, geneva convention um which is a, a kind of a policy laid out to protect the non-combatants of war uh in in today's warfare uh how can you compare the geneva convention 
to the Islamic uh, laws of wars and uh, which one you know gets on top which one is, is the better rule I mean the the, the Islamic uh, uh, principles and rules were amazing in human history uh, to be honest and Geneva Convention uh, was largely written after the Second World War in 1949 to and it largely aims at protecting non-combatants um, you know, wars have taken place throughout, and all sorts of atrocities have been uh, committed. And if you if you look at Judeo-Christian culture and up to modern Europeans, the situation was quite dread- dreadful. I mean, even from the time of Moses coming out of Egypt and then slaying the Canaanites, and you know, um, uh, of course, we uh, revere all the prophets, and the Quran has a different version on how things were spread. But the Old Testament shows Joshua absolutely slaughtering um, you know the Canaanites and animals including and trees and burning everything down and this was carried through by the European civilizations in many ways in a terrible way not only between wars themselves within Europe but across other nations that they colonized and in Second World War as well terrible atrocities took place and thousands and millions of civilians lost their lives as well so Geneva Convention really was written at a much later stage to say, look, you have to protect civilians. In Islam, that started off long, long time ago. And as I say, aggressive wars were just definitely not allowed. And, you know, women, children, even, you know, um, trees and uh, agriculture was protected. Holy places were protected. Um, so Islam, the great gave teachings uh, to the whole world, uh, which sadly the West, uh, because of uh, from the Crusade times, they were always painted in a negative way. And the Geneva Convention, in a so-called civilized world, tried to make things better. But you can see even now, look, no, no, we're in 2023, and just look what's happening in Gaza. Absolutely mm-hmm. dreadful. 10,000 innocent civilians, children, over half of them children. And the Western world that calls itself so civilized, is allowing this genocide, this slaughter to go on. So they pay lip service to a lot of these conventions. They're meaningless, to be honest. Um, and uh, we you know, lost that value system that Islam gave to everyone. Yes, exactly. Even, I mean, the, the UN, uh, such a powerful uh, um, thing that was created, uh, His Holiness mentioned in his Friday sermon that uh, when these um, attacks from Israel started, that uh, even... At that point, uh, UN was requesting, you know, Israel to uh, please stop. Uh, I mean, they, they were so powerless. Even though they're not powerless, they have power. But as you said, it's just lip service, and uh, there's there's just different intention behind it. Uh, it is dreadful. The United Nations has failed in many ways. And again, Islam is quite clear on uh, how... Mm. Uh, peace should be established, how different nations should come together to establish peace, to chop, uh, to stop the aggressor. Um, and, and here, basically, you know, there are economic and strategic interests that are driving this slaughter. Uh, and it's uh, dreadful to witness, and all we can do is pray and try to appeal to our political and media. Even the media has played a dreadful role, really, in dehumanizing a population like the Palestinians who are defenseless. Yeah, and uh, just encouraging the slaughter. Uh, you've seen the coverage on all the media channels. It's just dreadful. Indeed. Absolutely, and and our thoughts and uh, prayers go out to um, all those who have been affected 
by this may Allah the Almighty uh, you know grant the families patience uh, you know and uh, absolutely absolutely thank you so much uh, dr Iqbal for joining us this morning and shedding light uh, on this on this very uh, important topic thank you so much it's my pleasure thank you thank you thank you make sure the listeners also tune tune into uh, dr Iqbal's show um, living history on voice of Islam a uh, very interesting and very uh, you know detailed um, answer he's given very um, intellectual i think um, it's a very very um, impressive absolutely and and what you know one thing uh, he uh, dr iqbal quoted was the verse from chapter 22 verse 41 uh, and mm. i think i'll just read the verse out uh, for the listeners as well um, so in the name of allah the gracious the merciful so it's it says that those who have been driven out of their homes unjustly only because they said that our lord is allah and if allah did not repel some men by means of others they would surely have pulled down cloisters churches and synagogues and mosques wherein the name of allah is oft commemorated and allah will surely help one who helps him allah is indeed powerful mighty and what's interesting in this verse is that the word mosques have been used right at the end mm. whereas the first uh, w- first few um, places of worship which have been mentioned are cloisters churches synagogues that referring to the fact that if muslims had not defended th- themselves at that particular time then religion itself was was under threat and in fact muslims at that time defending themselves they did so out of freedom of religion and for the protection mm. of religion um and what was interesting is that if we look at some of the particular figures of the muslims at that time we we can come to a conclusion that the most muslims at the time of the prophet that had accepted islam was not at a time of war but was at the time of peace and at the mm-hmm. time where muslims could freely propagate for example um we know that on the second year of migration this is when uh, the battle of badr had taken place and it is no it is said that the the muslim army roughly around that time was 300 300 313 yeah. um and soon after in in the 6th year of migration and this is when uh, sulah hudaybiyah had also the treaty of hudaybiyah had also taken place the muslims at that time is recorded to have been the army have been recorded to have been 1500 um and What's interesting to note is that in the peace treaty one of the peace treaties of Hudaybiyah was that there will be no fighting at all for mm. for a, for a good number of years um and within just two and a half years uh was the conquest of Mecca and we know that on the conquest of Mecca the army rose to 10,000 mm. 10,000 people had marched and it's surprising that how within a span of two and a half years the muslim army jumped from 1500 to 10000 and within those uh, two and a half years there was no fighting at all this was the only period where muslims were commanded that you can freely 
preach the message of Islam. So it was at that time that uh, Muslims had propagated the message of Islam. Whereas if you look at second second year of migration to the sixth year of migration, those five years were the time of battles. And mm. the Muslim army ha- had only increased 1,200. Mm. So this particularly shows from these figures that um, because at that time, you know, m- Muslims, they, they couldn't, freely propagate and those people that even had become Muslims out of fear of uh, of being oppressed they did not openly say that they are Muslims mm. um, and it was after the treaty of Hudaybiyah that uh, Muslims were allowed to propagate freely and this is what we see from figures that uh, that Muslims had uh, increased in very much in number also yeah. the uh, another thing I think here I wanted to just mention and I'll close with that and I'll pass the mic on to you Usman is that Islam is it lays a huge emphasis on sanctity of life and so much so that if we listen to this verse of the Holy Quran it shows how important life is in the sight of Allah the Almighty it says in chapter 5 verse 33 in the name of Allah the gracious the most for that whoever killed a person unless it be for killing a person or for creating disorder in, in the land, it shall be as if he has killed all of mankind. And whoso gave life to one, it shall be as if he had given life to all of mankind. And such a beautiful verse which shows that if a person commits mur- murder unjustly, then it is as if he has killed the whole of mankind. And similarly, someone who gave a life to someone or who who helped someone is as if he has saved the whole of mankind. So, yeah, please uh, do do shed some light on this. Uh, what's what's your take on this on this particular particular yeah, subject? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, you can talk about this uh, for days because, um, especially from you know today's uh, the, the objections uh, which are I think they are outdated as well now that Islam is a, a terrorizing religion or Islam is about jihad. They don't. Firstly, understand the concept of jihad. Jihad means a struggle, and the biggest jihad is against your own uh, own uh, desires. You know, controlling yourself. And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, I mean, we give these examples from history because these are the best examples you can look at, and there is nothing better than that. Uh, when he marched onto um, Mecca, when he f- conquered Mecca um, um, with ten thousand people, um, he he stepped in and he said. What would you expect from a person? Now imagine this person, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. In Makkah, there is a woman who ate the liver of his uncle. Okay, in Makkah, there's a person who has killed, um, because of because of uh, that person, uh, the wife of the Holy Prophet, his first wife, Hazrat Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her. She died because of the persecution which which they had to face 13 years ago. There was there was enemies, you know, like. Uh, very very staunch enemies of Islam and the Holy Prophet in that city. When he marched in, he said, "La tasriba, like that you're all forgiven. You're all forgiven." Now he had the power to slay everyone. He had the power to take revenge, but this was not the teaching. This was not in his intention from the beginning. The army that was raised ten thousand people. We call it army, but that was just you know poor people. It was farmers. It was uh, traders. Who stood up to just defend their life? They weren't trained soldiers, hmm. you know. These they were not armies. They were just uh, simple people who wanted to uh, want some some freedom for their religion. So uh, 
that was that was the case that was the picture and uh, so i don't understand how people can uh, raise any objection against islam if you want to know about islam you read the quran okay you read uh, books you read the facts don't listen to people don't follow these extremist groups because uh, that way no religion is safe you know christianity is a, is a brutal religion judaism is the worst religion then hinduism wouldn't be safe no religion is safe if you start listening to people you have to go to the books you have to look at the concept what did what did islam come with and uh, the untempered you know facts then you will see that that there is nothing like uh, killing or warfare in islam uh, unjustly absolutely and uh, we we have uh, now with us uh, imam ibrahim noonan all the way from ireland assalamu alaikum uh, imam uh, ibrahim noonan how are you doing this morning assalam i'm doing well Allah, you're you're going from Bradford accents to Irish accents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, and and how how are your how are your jogs going? I I do follow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still doing it. Still at it. Still, at, I'll be going after the show, and I'll be heading out again. Fantastic, so. fantastic. No, it's very inspiring. I think that even uh, you know at your age uh, Raymond you you still kept active um, and you know I, I also do try to use Strava as well uh, it, it it does motivate <laughs> me as well <laughs> um. <laughs> well you have to keep doing it you know you have to keep, you have to keep, you have to keep trying every day that's that's the goal you know absolutely absolutely and and you know we're discussing uh, this topic of um, of war as well and a very very uh, potent topic especially um nowadays so i wanted to ask you um how has islam protected the rights of civilians when it comes to come, comes to war well as uh, both of you your hosts both hosts thought you mentioned uh, very very beautifully um there is, you know, there is no faith in my personal opinion, uh, in my years of research and research years of reading, both the the Bible, the, the Quran, and, and the Baghdad Gidas, etc. Uh, you will not find such just, rational, logical teachings as given in the Quran regarding this issue. Um, the, the Prophet Muhammad's peace be upon him was very clear on this. Uh, when he instructed the companions when they had to go to war, as I already mentioned, uh, defensive purposes, do not kill women, do not kill children, do not touch the elderly, do not touch sick people, do not even go near around uh, inhabited areas. Um, and and as already pointed out by Dr. Abal, if there's no combatants, if you're going through a village or a town, whatever the case may be, and there's people who are not fighting you, then you're not allowed to touch them. This is what Islam teaches. And uh, this is, uh, as as all the great uh, generals of the past, like Khalid bin Walid and the companions themselves, uh, acted upon this. And uh, that's the beauty. That's, that's, there's nothing like it. There, there is no... If... if Modern armies today were to act upon such rules, um, you wouldn't be seeing the, you know, the unnecessary killing of any human life, civilians uh, today that we're observing in Russia, we're observing in the Russian-Ukraine war, 
and now the horrific and uh, you know just the horrific onslaught of the slaughter of the these innocent Palestinians in in um, in, in in Gaza, and indeed I would say the same for. Uh, those innocent civilians and uh, who were killed and hurt uh, in in uh, where Hamas and in the Israeli side, it's it's not, it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Imam Ibrahim Noor and Saab. Um, I mean, do what do other religions say about war? Um, there, there are people in the world. They, I mean, they're not just against Islam. That against the religion as a whole, they raise objections on all religions. But for a perspective, I mean, why are we, you know, we keep claiming that Islam is Islam, Islam is the great religion. Are there any teachings about warfare in other religions? No, there is, of course, um, uh, particularly in Judaism. And, uh, Christianity does not have so much. My, 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 my understanding of Christianity over the years is they mainly, when it comes to warfare, as an example, they normally lean towards um Judaic understanding of war and indeed there is clear uh, instruction in the Jewish faith regarding war um and unfortunately uh we have to do we have to do justice uh, Judaism as well because we do believe it was a faith divinely revealed uh, but we find in Judaism there is constraints given to um the Jewish community regarding war um and that that said unfortunately and i and i have to say this as 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 honestly as i can say it and that is when you do look at uh, the old testament the tanakh the the jewish such there is some very unfortunate uh teachings which can be seen as uncivilized um and and what we see from the history of the Jewish faith, unfortunately, is that when they did wage war, mm. they 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 slaughtered, they they you know they conquered and slaughtered. Conquest was there, um, and interestingly, interestingly, uh, just viewers, interestingly, it it's, it has always been in the round of uh, the the land of Canaan, which is where which is where current day modern Gaza is mm-hmm. and um, so whereas I have to say that there are teachings in the Old Testament and particularly in Deuteronomy uh, you'll find where God tells uh, the Jewish people act upon good and just you know and, and we keep away from bad good and evil but on the other side you will see um, conquests where were granted permission according to the Old Testament for to go in and conquer um, not like Islam, it's completely the opposite to Islam. And this is the reality. In the Old Testament, um, in, in, you know, in, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Leviticus, as an example, these two books in particular, you will find that it was simply an instruction of go and conquer and, and, and remove everything that's in your path. Whereas in Islam, it's the opposite. Right? Yeah. So, for example, just as one example... In, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, um, you will find that the prophet Joshua was commanded by God in the Old Testament to, as they were entering, as they were entering into Canaan, uh, to conquer Canaan, to uh, annihilate everything on your route. So basically, the first clash 
of war or conquer, conquest of, of uh, Joshua was to, uh, to uh, kill 12,000 men, women, and children by the edge of the sword. This is clearly written in the book of Joshua mm-hmm. in chapter 8, verse 1 to the end of it. And I couldn't help but kind of, when I was reflecting upon this, the similarity that we're seeing was, was happening in Gaza at the moment. Um, so the, so Judaism, uh, in, in most of its history, has been to conquer, to, to take land, to annihilate uh, anything that's in their way, even though there were teachings on righteous rabbis, righteous people at that time who would have opposed as uh, such, not the time of the Prophet, but meaning Prophet Moses, peace be upon him, mm-hmm. but in, in modern contemporary times, you will find uh, rabbinic literature traditions trying to uh, insist upon um, a more a moral approach towards, um, towards war. But there's two camps in Judaism, from what I've, did, what I've seen over my years of research in Judaism, and one is um, a more tolerant, um, peaceful camp, which is looking to find the ways to create peace. And on the other side, you have Zionism, basically, mm-hmm. where it's Zionist ideologies conquer, slaughter, and, and take what's yours, remove evil from your land, etc. Um, so this is there are war rules there, but mostly, I from what I researched, there's very little uh, any similarity to the, 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 these. Logical and martial, beautiful teachings of Islam. And uh, Imam Ibrahim I just wanted to add a question to that. When when we do read about Islam as well, that even in states of war, as you mentioned, that uh, Islam says that you know you look out, you shouldn't uh, attack or or harm children, women, uh, even sacred places uh, and trees. Mm. Is is it was is that the case with the Jew, with the Judaism and Christianity? What's your research on that? Like I said, there is um, similar uh, teachings within Judaic teaching where mm. um, righteous prophets of God have in, having have encouraged righteousness uh, in war. Uh, the Christian, from the Christian perspective, you see Christianity doesn't. You know, Christianity is basically made up of four books: mm-hmm. the Gospels. Mm-hmm. You have the rest of the letters of Paul, etc. But if you look at the four Gospels, there's nothing. There's mm-hmm. nothing on warfare whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and there couldn't be because how the Isa peace upon him, Jesus uh, didn't have a state, didn't have a country. He wasn't. He wasn't a king who led a nation, unfortunately. I mean, mm-hmm. I say the unfortunately because they, they rejected him, basically. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So he didn't need to have uh, these elaborated laws. Um, what we do know about the New Testament, he did advise his followers to carry swords um, and to buy them. Now, that's natural, that's logical, because in those days you have to walk to you know, inhabited areas and, you know, there'll be bandits and people trying to attack you. Self-defense, carrying a sword, that, that's fine. Mm. But you, there was no such thing uh, where he mentioned about war. Now, I would, I would imagine if he had been able to be accepted by the people of his time, maybe he, w- maybe he would have had a state and he would have had a kingdom, and I'm pretty sure he would have fought the Judaic. 
he would follow the Judaic laws of, of Moses in that case. Mm. Um, perhaps he would have reformed it, being that he was a Messiah. So um, Christianity seems to lean towards, from my research at least, they lean towards what the Judaic teaching is on this issue. So, they, for example, if you mention to a Christian today that look in the book of Joshua, I'm just giving this as another example, in the book of Joshua, 12,000 men, women, and children were killed by the sword. They will say it's justified because these were evil people. But therefore, they will take on that approach. Um, and that's how they take on that approach. So they don't have a standard, except for modern uh, modern, modern concepts of, of equality and justice based upon modern laws. But in Christianity, they don't have anything as such. But in Judaism, they do. I mean, they're, interestingly enough, there is... Um, there is a, a concept in Judaism where, where it's, it's, it's in, in, in Hebrew, it's his Habeshun Haim Nefcha, which means that with the reformation of, of oneself, like Nasi Umrah in, in Islam, there is that concept in mystical Judaism. So there's, there, there seems to have been, and I'm sure there must have been, a very small followers of very deeply Sufi type. Jewish people who believed in peace, who believed in humanity, who believed in uh, being kind and righteous. They had to be there because was, uh, the Torah was revealed by God Almighty to Hazrat Musa, but they're far too far too uh, between. There are very few of these people in, in Judaism now. Um, so there is rules there, but they're not as elaborated and not as, um, what's the word I want to use? I want to use the word forced where the Prophet, peace be upon him, made it clear to mm-hmm. his followers that uh, regarding the Holy Quran. The Quran is clear. I mean, I, I've quoted these verses many, many times before from the Holy Quran, but, you know, there, there's a very clear verse in the Quran that says, And let there always be among you a body of men who should invite to goodness and enjoy virtue and forbid evil, forbid evil, and they shall, they, and, and so they shall prosper. Now, that's, that's very beautiful teaching. And if, if that's to be followed in warfare, as, as given by the Prophet, you know, you wouldn't see what's happening now, today, in, 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 in the Russian-Ukraine war or within the, the conflict that's going on at the moment, the unfortunate conflict that's going on at the moment uh, in Gaza. Mm. Okay. Uh, thank you. Thank you, my brother. That was a very, very detailed uh, discussion. And, uh, I mean, there's so many points about Christianity, Judaism. And uh, yeah, I mean, you are the expert in Christianity as well. So thank you for joining us, and it was a pleasure speaking to you. No, thank uh, you. All thank this you. is thank you. Have a good day. Salam alaikum. Thank you. Salam. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us, mm. and uh, if you do uh, want to join this discussion. So we just listened to um, Ibrahim Imam Noon, and he is a regular contributor to Voice of Islam. Um, he is the Imam of Galloway Mosque, National Vice President, missionary in charge in Ireland. So uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning and mm-hmm. sharing your expertise on this. We do have um, a small uh, clip to share with our listeners and uh, it is on yeah. on this particular topic as well. So it's the a question about um, uh, if war can be declared on other uh, uh, other than religious reasons, and uh, His Holiness has Mr. Ahmed the fourth 
head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, answered this. Yes. Can't war be declared for any other reason other than uh, a religious reason? Of course, a war can be declared for any reason. Rightful reason, I mean, according to the, uh, to the Islam, according to the Holy Quran. Whoever, you know, the, for that, different declarations are made in different places. But the holy war, as it is called, jihad, <coughs> is kept away, aloof from these things. Because it's a religious phenomena which should not be mixed up with ordinary political or other phenomenon of defense and aggression, etc. The Holy Quran permits anybody who has been wronged to take revenge against that wrong to the extent that he is wrong. And wars otherwise than these have also been mentioned. You, uh, another war has also been mentioned in the Holy Quran against a, by the Muslim states against a Muslim state. If a Muslim state falls uh, out with another Muslim state, then it is the duty according to the Holy Quran of the entire Muslim world to bring about a reconciliation. And if they fail to do so, and the aggressive party does not mend her ways, then it is permitted in the Holy Quran for the whole Muslim Ummah to go into war against that aggressive party. But on the condition that once it is overpowered, it should be rectified and no wrong should be committed against that party itself. So there are so many other places in which, in general principles, these, these issues are, meant, uh, are, are discussed. So any war other than jihad is uh, a regular war. It is permitted by the Holy Quran, provided the party which goes into the war is the grieved party. So that was a small clip uh, from uh, His Holiness Azamza Tahir Ahmed. May Allah the Almighty have mercy on him. Um, and I think we will just close uh, this particular topic um, and I'll read out a quote uh, from the from His Holiness Azamza Ahmed, head of the MDM Muslim community. And uh, this was from his Friday sermon where he warned of a, a looming world war and highlighted the complicity of world leaders with their unjust policies. And he criticized the Western media bias in the coverage of the Israel-Palestine war and made an urgent call for concentrated prayers. And I think with that, uh, as, he, as His Holiness mentioned, uh, prayers as well with that uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I think I'll close it with his quote in which he said that we should pray we should lay great focus on our prayers uh, we should pray for the end of this oppression and strive to end it in in uh, our remits and we should pray both for the oppressed Muslims and for the establishment of a comprehensive and long-term strategy by Muslim governments there should be a profound pain in our hearts for Muslims to be elevated of hardship. And we believe in the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, um, who despite their opposition to us, uh, expressed in a Persian couplet that, O oh my heart, be considerate towards them, for they claim to love 
for my profit, peace and blessings be upon him. Therefore, our love for the Holy Prophet of Islam demands that we pray intensely for Muslims. May Allah grant us the ability to do so and also to the Muslims. May he bestow wisdom upon the world. I mean, um, and I think with that, we just want to thank uh, the whole team as well. Uh, we wanted to thank um, Halima Ahmed and Sobia Ahmed, uh, who, uh, who with the with the team, uh, Fatma Rizwan, who was the lead producer here, and also the team of researchers, uh, Waki Amtul Kafi, uh, Mala Sarish Taiba, Atia Sofia, uh, Noshin Ahmed. So. Jazakumullah uh, to all of the team for your hard work and also to the tech team who have uh, been working very hard in the background. Uh, so thank you to all of the team for a great production this morning. Um, and until next time, uh, <laughs> you, you you probably uh, will be <laughs> hearing uh, myself on uh, Friday morning and Usman uh, usually back on uh, back on his uh, Monday Monday morning shows. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> yes, and uh, we forgot to thank the guests, of course, um, which have a vital part of the show, as they bring in you know the the facts and the in the, the detailed intakes. So thank you to uh, Dr. Sarah as well, um, Imam uh, Ibrahim Nuran Saab and. Uh, Dr. Iqbal um, and thank you to you uh, you as well Tokir for <laughs> and thank you uh, helping to you. me with this uh, <laughs> show here <laughs> and thank you to you as well. uh, and until next time we do hope that you've enjoyed the show Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh